the reality of reconciliation. And our text will be 2 Corinthians chapter 5, <laughs> verses 16 through 21. Father, as we begin and open up your word this morning, as we've just experienced the beauty of believers' baptism and are so thankful for Pharaoh following you in obedience uh, to your command for us to be baptized, uh, Father, we uh, are just so thankful for her life and her testimony. And Father, we are grateful for, for the beautiful Christmas songs that we've sung, even some of these songs that don't quite seem like Christmas songs, Father, that speak of Jesus coming uh, to make peace uh, between you, the Father, and us, and to reconcile us. So as we continue on with that theme now in our text, we pray you would change our hearts and show us, uh, uh, teach us what reality is and teach us what reconciliation uh, is. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I found this quote this week that's attributed to Billy Graham. And I don't know if Billy Graham, I don't know where he said it or where he wrote it. I couldn't find that out. But I, I, I searched it on Google, and, you know, you, you, you know, Abraham Lincoln said, don't trust everything on the Internet, so I try not to. But uh, this is the quote by Billy Graham. It said, find some friends, change the world, and have fun doing it. Find some friends, change the world, and have fun doing it. And I, I was talking to Doug in my office this week, and I said, I don't know if he said it, but I think he did it. I think if you look at that group of guys that got together with Billy Graham uh, when they started preaching, even in the early days, right after World War II over in England, the United States, when they were going doing Youth for Christ events, it was just some guys that were great friends that really loved each other. They loved the Lord Jesus Christ, and they went out to proclaim His name to the nations and really did change the world. And of course, you know, we can, can bicker about methods and, and talk about how evangelism should be done. I like there's an old Moody quote uh, where someone came up to Moody, I think, and said they didn't like the way he was doing evangelism. I think this is who said this, but he said something like, I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing it. And so we can praise God for the work that Billy Graham did uh, all over the world of bringing the gospel to millions and millions of people who never heard it. And, and we understand that that changed the world. And there are many lives that have been changed uh, over the course of, of his ministry or, or that were changed over the course of his ministry as he's passed away now. But can we, as First Baptist Church of Olney, could we get together and say, let's get together as friends, as people who love one another? Can we change the, the part of the world that God has ordained for us to change? And can we have fun? Can we enjoy what God might do through us? I wonder when we hear that quote, and I think of how I read that quote, if that's my mindset most of the time, to get up, to enjoy fellowship, to change the world, and to enjoy it. You know, there's a lot of things that mitigate, mitigate against us being able to live out a quote like that. Because there's some other things that are true about life, right? Life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard. People are difficult. Is it easy to follow Christ and his call? No. It doesn't always seem like a bed of roses, does it? It doesn't always seem like the most exciting thing in the world. We are easily discouraged by this world, by the circumstances that we find around us. In fact, even as Christians, we're easily discouraged by one another. As Christians, we're horrified by evil. And then also as Christians, we're horrified by our own sin. 
And so it's easy to, to say, when we come to Christ, like we think of young Pharaoh today and the excitement of being baptized and entering those waters and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life and to have friends around her that are encouraging her. But as we get older, we all know what it is to slip and to drift and to forget how exciting and how fulfilling and how satisfying and how hopeful it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But just because it's easy to slip, just because it's easy to drift, just because it's easy to forget these things, what I want to do today is I want to argue for a perspective that I see in our text that I believe the Apostle Paul had, and I think the Apostle Paul showed the Corinthian church a perspective that might let us say to one another, let's remember that we're called to do something big here. I mean, isn't it seem crazy? Like I got up at my little house in Olney just like you got up at your little house in Olney. And I put my clothes on and I came to church and I sat in Sunday school. Maybe you all had donuts. I don't know what you did. I'm here struggling with a cough just like Lori. She walked in and said, keep that junk to yourself next time. <laughs> I get bogged down by a lot of things, but then here I stand up here, I'm like, hey guys, let's change the world. That's still pretty exciting, isn't it? I mean, that's an amazing thing that we could come in here and that we can actually pretend as just, you know, uh, normal human beings, normal uh, flesh and blood, that we could actually come into a place like this and say to one another, God has given us not only the ability, but the commission to go out and change the world, and then to enjoy Him and glorify Him while we do it. How did Paul have that perspective? Especially when he was dealing with these rascals that we think of as the Corinthian church. How can we be like Paul here and set out to change the world together and enjoy what God is doing through us. Let's look at our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a Bible in front of you if you don't have one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Our text will be verses 16 through 21. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of the context of the passage. So Paul is a leader in the early church. It's about 2,000 years ago. Paul's called an apostle. This man, Paul's an apostle. That means he was a leader who had special authority in the early church. He spoke on behalf of God to the people in these churches that the other apostles and Paul were planting. And Paul, with many of his churches, had a bumpy relationship. The church in Corinth, in this particular Greek city, was very suspicious of Paul. They were not impressed with him. One of the main reasons they weren't impressed with Paul is because he seemed to have such bad luck in their eyes. And they thought, how could a guy be suffering all this hardship and misfortune if he's really blessed by God? And they weren't opening up to him. And they were being cruel to him. And they were questioning him. And they were demanding proof that he really was an authority. So he wrote a letter. He sent a, an associate over to meet with them and found that when they had received his letter, many of them did have a change of heart. And they opened up their hearts to him, and they began to see and understand that even though he was suffering hardship, he was saying, I'm suffering for Jesus. I'm, I'm just being faithful in what I'm called to do, and my lot is to suffer for Jesus so other people can know the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. 
And so as they began to change their heart, it was great news. And Paul was greatly encouraged, but he knew that there were still some in that church who were questioning him, who were questioning his authority. And so this is a very occasional letter. It's a very personal letter. It addresses certain situations that are going on in the church. And in the part of the letter that we're reading now as we come to chapter 5, he is acknowledging to them that there's work to do because he feels like he still has to defend himself in his ministry. He's working through some hurts. He's working through and explaining to them his understanding of what he's been called to do for them and for the kingdom of God. And it's very interesting to read this letter as a pastor because it's like a deep dive down into Paul's heart where we are able to see what makes this man tick. What is keeping Paul going? How in the world does Paul hang in there? How does Paul keep from losing heart? What is Paul's relationship with Jesus like? How does he deal with being discouraged? And as we've been walking through chapter 4 and 5, we've been thinking about Paul's line of reasoning. And here in chapter 5 and in the first part of chapter 6, when we get there after Christmas, we're going to see some really great conclusory thoughts that Paul makes about how he functions and how he thrives as a minister, even though he has a broken heart. So here's a man thriving and functioning. Here's a man who keeps going. Here's a man who doesn't lose heart. But here's a man who has a broken heart. So let me say this to you. There's two kinds of people in our pews today. <clears throat> there are those with problems and those who will have problems soon. In our pews this morning, in this very room, there are those of us with broken hearts and those of us whose hearts will eventually be broken. People with problems and people with broken hearts are the ones that change the world. Is everything perfect in your life? Did everything work out exactly the way you thought it was going to work out? No. Can God still use you? Yes. Think of how God loves the brokenhearted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the weak, for they will inherit the earth. And man, you know, I love the holidays, but as I've gotten older, I've realized that there's a lot of excitement that I feel around holidays and having little ones and so on. And as I get older and have spent more time with older saints, and you realize that as much fun as the holidays can be, they can be just as hard, can't they? Because you have memories that you remember and that person's not here anymore, they're in heaven. And there's just, there's just things that hurt, aren't there? And so how do you keep going? How do you not lose heart? Remember when Chris preached a couple weeks ago and that was one of the main things that was the point of his sermon was Paul saying, we don't lose heart. How do we not lose heart? How do we, how do we wrestle with this disappointment? I mean, I look out here and I, can, I could probably, I've been here 10 years now, I know where you're hurting. So how did Paul do this? Remember in Chris's passage it said, and I love the way Chris explained it was so good about that inner man being renewed, that we're constantly being made new. How do we find that inner person in us, our heart, being made new? Because I think we'll focus on the fact that yes, our out, outside, 
what's going on, these circumstances, everything's wasting away. But God's doing something spiritual in the heart, isn't he? He's doing something wonderful in our broken hearts that will change the world. So I want to suggest today that our text teaches us, as we get down to it, understanding that context, of what kind of heart Paul is writing from, that there's a reality of reconciliation that's wonderful. So how do we look at the world? First point, everything is spiritual. This is a key. Say it with me. Everything is spiritual. Look at verse 16. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. What does that mean? All right, Paul's making big points in this section of the letter. He's talking about the reality of judgment. He's talking about the importance of fearing the judge who can judge you. He's talking about how because he's afraid of the Lord, he fears the Lord, he seeks to persuade others to know Jesus. He says his life is about living for others. It's not about living for yourself. The gospel message is about Jesus dying for all so all can live for him. Those are great big ideas, but they don't matter if you're not looking at everything from an eternal perspective. Are you looking at your life from a fleshly perspective or an eternal perspective? Because you've got to, for everything to be spiritual, for you to understand all the stuff that actually matters in life, you can't be hung up on the flesh. You can't be looking at the stuff that you can see. You've got to be looking at the stuff you can't see. Paul just came to grips with who Jesus really was. He says, I used to regard Jesus this way. I thought he was just a man. I don't look at him like that anymore. And I don't look at anybody like they're just flesh now. That's what Paul says. How does Paul look at people? How do you look at people? Think about how you look at people. When you look at somebody that comes up to you, and man, I was, we went to the Metroplex yesterday, and you know the worst place to go if you want to just wind up with a terrible feeling about humanity? Go to a mall. Somehow I've stayed out of malls, I feel like, pretty good lately. You know, they all seem to be dying, and so I don't even want to go. Dillard's closes and all that. But... You know, I was walking around and I was, just really, I was just really angry at people that were walking in front of me and people that weren't paying attention and all this stuff. Is that the way we should look at people though? Or when we encounter people, should I think, look at this guy. This is an eternal soul. This is someone who's going to live forever either in heaven or hell. You know, how do we regard people, in the flesh or in the spirit? Do we see the visible part of people, or do we have eyes of faith that can see the invisible part of people? Listen to this quote by Fanny Crosby. Do y'all know who Fanny Crosby is? You might not have ever heard of her name. Her name is Fanny Crosby. She lived, you know, uh, in the the 19th century, but she was a famous hymn writer, and she wrote literally hundreds or even possibly thousands of hymns, and she was blind. And she had this quote. She said, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank Him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung the hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. I don't think she was saying about herself. She's saying around her. But she was saying, you know what? I can't see, and it's good that I can't see the things that I should be able to see because I can see the invisible things. That's how somebody can write something like this. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture. 
now burst on my sight. Well, I thought she was blind. Well, she saw something, didn't she? Angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. What would she say about that? She'd say, that's my story, and that's my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Everything is spiritual. Secondly, the old is made new in Christ. If you are in Jesus, look at verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So speaking of Billy Graham, big crusade, 1954 in England. Many people's lives were changed by this crusade there in the mid-50s that Billy Graham did over in England. And people showed up, people that wanted to hear Billy Graham and people that didn't even like Billy Graham showed up. So at this particular crusade one night, there were two men who showed up, stood at the back of the room, and they were yelling and being boisterous and talking through the whole thing, and they realized that they both had two things in common. They didn't like Americans, and they didn't like evangelists. But they talked, and at some point, they started to listen a little bit, and at some point, Billy Graham made the appeal, just as Jan made the appeal for us today, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Are you one of those people who's going to heaven, or are you one of those people who's going to hell? You need to turn from your sin, repent, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And those two men that have been back there causing trouble the whole meeting, one says to the other, I think I'm going to go down forward. I think I've been changed. And the other guy said, I think I've been changed too. I'm going to go down forward, and here's your wallet. <laughs> I'm a pickpocket. <laughs> I was funnier when I read it. But there had been a change there, hadn't there? <clears throat> the pickpocket gave back the wallet because he had been changed. And our verse says this, doesn't it? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's good to remind yourself daily if you're a believer that you have been changed and that the old is gone. You're being made new. Paul says we don't regard anybody according to the flesh. Don't regard yourself according to the flesh. See what God sees about you and what He says about you. When I'm discouraged, I can remember those things, can't I? There's a whole thing out, there's a whole bunch out there that I can't even visibly see, but everything is spiritual. And I can remind myself that I've been made new. Those are realities that I can remember. Well, how did I become new? How did I become new? And how can the fact that I'm new and everything is spiritual cause me to be able to walk with my head up in such a discouraging time in my life? Or knowing that maybe this is a great time in my life, but certainly I'll walk into something that's going to be hurtful and difficult in the future. What has happened God has reconciled. Third point, God has reconciled. Everything is spiritual. The old is made new in Christ. Third point, God has reconciled. How do we become new creatures in Christ? How does the old pass away and the new come? Look at verse 18. Where does it come from? All this is from God. Now underline that so you'll understand who's in control. All this is from God. The process, what it took to take you from being an enemy of God to a friend of God, God did it all. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Then in verse 19, he explains it. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their trespasses against them. 
What is reconciliation? It means to fix a broken relationship. How did God fix the broken relationship that we had uh, with Him? Now, our relationship as human beings breaks with God because of our sin. God can't accept our sinfulness. So our relationship is broken because of our sinfulness. Well, how does God put the relationship back together? He doesn't count your sins against you. That's how He does it. Now, the way He's able to do that is He counts your sins against Jesus. So then Jesus has to take the penalty for your sins. So the way God is reconciled, the way God brings, you're his enemy, you hate him, he loves you, but the way he brings you to him, even though you hate him, is that he counts your trespasses against Jesus, not against you. That's what it says in the verse, isn't it? I think I'm just preaching right out of the Bible to you, where he says there, that is, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Chris and I heard uh, not too long ago this most wonderful man named Jeff Thomas, a preacher from Wales who came over and spoke to us in Graham. And I found this quote by Brother Jeff, and he said, the staggering message of the New Testament is that reconciliation is a work of God. Here he is, the offended and injured party, the one sinned against, and yet he sets up the whole machinery of reconciliation. It's a work that does not draw within its scope human action. It does not enlist the assistance of men. It doesn't depend upon the activity of men. God was just motivated by pure love for you, for his enemies, and he did what it took to fix the relationship by sending us Jesus Christ. In short, man left God, but the good news is that God brought him back. I don't get this wrong, though. Just because God's done all the work, you can still snub God. Don't, don't think that you can't still snub God. It's possible for you to ignore what he's done, to not repent of your sins, to not realize he's opened that door for forgiveness in a relationship. Those who come and are reconciled to God come in humility, they come in repentance, and they come in faith, and they come with this on their lips. Jan Tyler said it, Jesus is her Lord. Have a good word for her Lord. Jesus is Lord. And then after he saves us, he gives us this ministry of reconciliation so others can come to God. The ministry of reconciliation is not telling people to make peace with God, but the ministry of reconciliation is telling them that God has made peace with the world. At the bottom line, Kent Hughes says, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. We're not called to make peace with God, that's what he's done. He's the one who's not counting people's trespasses against him. He's the one who's reckoned all the sins to Christ, and it's our job to spread the message. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. You know, it's very interesting to me about this passage. What is so interesting to me and I know I see preachers in the room, and <laughs> we preach this passage and preach this verse many, many times, but sometimes this escapes my attention, is that when I read verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that written to believers or non-believers? Well, it's a letter written to a church, isn't it? Now, I would say definitely we're always making an appeal to lost people to be reconciled to God, but Paul's writing to a church here. 
a church where there's turmoil and problems, and he's telling those believers, be reconciled to God. We all need reconciliation to God, first for salvation and then for fellowship and relationship, for our relationship with God and for our relationship with each other. The way that Paul and the Corinthians were going to come together like this, the way that Paul and their relationship that had been on the rocks was going to be put back together was going to be dependent upon Paul being reconciled to God and them being reconciled to God. What do we say when we're counseling the couple in the marriage, marriage counseling? We say, okay, husband, you're over here, and wife, you're over here, and it seems like the twain never shall meet. They've got a big disagreement over something, right? Maybe it's the way they're spending money. Maybe it's over where to go, uh, uh, which which in-laws to go to for the holidays. I don't know. There's all kinds of things. You can put a a husband and wife together, and they'll find lots of things to fight about. And we're sitting here and we're saying, this, this looks like we're never going to get a compromise. And this is kind of how life is sometimes. One, couple, one part of the couple's going this way, the other person's going this way. And here's the advice we give them when Melissa and I sit down with them. Say, think of it like a mountain. And if both of you will climb a mountain, and you may be on different sides of the mountain, but the closer you get to the top, the closer you also get to each other. This is good marriage advice, right? And it's free. So if both parties to the, to the marriage say, I trust, trust Jesus Christ, Jesus is my Lord, I love Jesus Christ, then I say, okay, then you pursue Jesus Christ. And as you pursue Jesus Christ, as both of y'all pursue holiness and you pursue a relationship with Jesus Christ, y'all are going to meet there at the top of that mountain. And the closer you get to the Lord Jesus Christ, the closer your hearts are going to get to one another. That's how we maintain, how can we maintain unity in a marriage? We've got to have the same heart. We've got to have the same mind. How do we get the same mind? Well, if both parties to the, cup, uh, to the couple have the mind of Christ, they're not going to have any problems, are they? That's the beautiful thing about a Christian marriage. And Paul's saying this in this relationship with the church. He's saying for us to get along and even for our congregation, when are we going to, why do we sing songs? Have you ever thought about like why do we even sing all these songs together? What's the point? What's the point of us all, in a minute, we're all going to stand up, we're going to say, come behold the wondrous mystery. We're all going to sing to each other, to tell each other, to behold the mystery of the Messiah. Why are we doing that? Because it helps us to develop the same mind, where we're saying, what's important is that Christ has come. What's important is that everything is spiritual. What's important is that the new has come and the old is gone. What's important is that Jesus Christ, uh, God through Jesus Christ has reconciled the world to himself. And now we, we implore each other that we are ambassadors. That we have a task that God has given us to do. And to, 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 to have this mindset and to accomplish the task We must continually be bringing ourselves and encouraging each other to be under His Lordship, under His authority, because of the beauty of the gospel message. What is the beauty of the gospel message? You know, you can underline verse 21 in your Bible, chapter 5, verse 21. Just underline that or highlight it. This is the whole gospel in one verse. Some of you say, I don't know how to tell tell people how, how to go to heaven. Listen, If you can't tell someone to get to heaven, how do you know you're going there? If you can't share the gospel with somebody, how do you know that you know the gospel? But I'm telling you right there in chapter 5, verse 21, you got the whole gospel in one verse. You just open that up and read it to somebody. For our sake. 
for us. He made him, Jesus, for our sake. He is God. Him is Jesus. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was perfectly innocent, wasn't he? Jesus had never committed a sin. Jesus didn't deserve to be punished for one single sin. But for my sake and for your sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he'd never known sin. So that in Jesus, if we will put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if we will find ourselves in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. To be acceptable to God, you've got to be right with God. You've got to be righteous. You've got to be holy. You've got to be perfect. The righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. If it's ever been displayed and shown to us what perfection looks like, it's Jesus. Perfectly honoring his Father. Perfectly keeping the law. This is the one who's acceptable to God. The one who is holy and the one who is perfect. Now, how many of you are holy and perfect? That's a big fat zero, isn't it? None of us, none of us are perfect and none of us are holy. But what is this verse telling us? That for our sake, Jesus, though he had never known sin, became sin. And all the punishment of sin and the wrath of God that that we deserve because we're the sinners, it was all poured out on Jesus. He wasn't counting your trespasses against you. He was pouring out that wrath upon Jesus. He was counting the tra- your trespasses against Jesus. But Jesus was perfect and Jesus was righteous. So what does God do? He takes your sin and he puts it on Jesus. And then he takes that perfect righteousness with which Jesus lived his whole life. And he takes that righteousness. He says, okay, Chad, you can have the righteousness. He takes the sin. He gives you the righteousness. So when you stand before God, you're not covered by your sin and your guilt. You're covered by the blood. What does that mean? Well, the blood is the life, right? The Bible teaches us that blood is life. The reason we don't drink blood, the Bible's told don't drink blood because the blood represents life. So if I'm standing here covered by the blood of Jesus, what does that mean? That means I'm covered by the life of Jesus, which was perfectly righteous. Not one stain of sin on it. And so if I'm covered by the blood, even though I'm a sinner, even though I don't deserve it, if my covering is the righteousness of Christ, when I stand before God, when I die, I'm acceptable to him. Why? Because he, for my sake, made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news, isn't it? Nothing you can do about that. (laughs) It's what God has done. Yesterday, we went to Prestonwood Baptist Church. This huge, just bear with me a little bit. I'm feeling good. Um, I'm going to go a little bit long, but y'all are going to be fine. You are going to survive. And if anybody gets weak, raise a hand. We'll have an usher take you out on a stretcher. So the, we went to Prestonwood Baptist Church yesterday, and they had this big Christmas musical. Amazing. Millions of dollars of audio, video, they had drummers flying in the air. You should look it up. You should actually go to this thing. It's, it's, it really puts you in the holiday spirit. Drummers, angels flying around, Santa Claus. I mean, they had everything. It was, it was just wild. And we were watching this show and getting in the Christmas spirit. And then they, they did the final scene was the nativity. They had the animals come up and baby Jesus and all that and the angels and camels. And it was, it was remarkable. And then the pastor got up. <clears throat> and so after all the big show... 
Here comes old Jack Graham. You know, he's getting older now. He had a, you know, his wife had dressed him up in a sweater and blue jeans, and he's wearing tennis shoes. And uh, he just walks out there with a microphone. You know what he started doing? He started sharing the gospel. And you know what people started doing? Just getting up and leaving. Just getting up and leaving. Everybody liked the music. Everybody liked the lasers. Everybody liked the light show. But they didn't want to hear that gospel. And you know, when, they were, when they, were, they were walking past me, I was sitting there, and nobody cared if I heard it or not either. They didn't know if I was a pastor. I could have, what if I'd have been a lost man off the street? And here were all these people saying, oh, we got to get out to the car. we got to get over there to Wingstop or wherever they were going. But see, as believers, that verse 21, that's our number one priority. It's for people to know that. And I don't know what the best way to be an ambassador is in a church service or with our traditions of invitations or technology or tracks or I don't know. What all I know is when Jan Tyler stands up here and she appeals to you for you to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, that's the number one thing. We've got to stand up here and, and, and urge each other to remember that everything is spiritual, that we're new creations, that God has reconciled, that we have been entrusted with this message of what Christ has done. And you know why this is so important? Because people need it or they're going to die and go to hell. I spoke with my former pastor via text yesterday. I want to be very sensitive as I talk about the tragic news of paradise that many of you are familiar with. Just over in a neighboring county in Wise County, right? And such tragic news when we hear about the way evil runs rampant in our world. My former pastor made this statement that really touched me. So simple. He said, we can't forget whenever our hearts are broken by this terrible, tragic news of how someone could hurt a child. When we come face to face with evil, what do we remember? This is why Jesus came. When your heart is broken over death and separation and sickness and hardship, don't run from God. Remember, this is why God ran towards us, like the father and the prodigal son. This is why Jesus came. And so in the midst of this awful, fearful, sinful place where we're tempted to go run and get under a rock or hide in a hole, that's not who we're called to be. We're called to, people, called to be the people who get out there and change the world. We're called to be the ones who say, yes, my heart's broken. Yes, I'm afraid. Yes, I'm confused. And we're called to run into the battle to let other people know that there's salvation and there's hope in Jesus Christ. That's our message for the world. That's what we should be singing about at Christmas. The baby in the manger is there because Christ is our only hope. The baby in the manger is a message that God loves us and is doing what it takes to bring us to him. The message of Christmas and the message of the cross is that God has made everything right. And this is good news. This is something we can rally around and say, friends, let's take this message and let's change the world and let's enjoy it doing it as we glorify God together.